for you guys who weren't here last week, missed that review. Hopefully, you had a chance to go back and read uh, Acts one through eight or one through seven to kind of just go over the review. But if you remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke, and the the primary message is that Jesus is the King, He's the Savior of the world, and nobody is beyond the scope of His love. Nobody. No matter how bad they are, no matter how evil you think they are, they are not beyond the scope of His His redemptive power. A lot of times it doesn't look like we think it's going to look. And the very people that we look at and we know, well, He would never save them are the very ones He ends up changing and using. There's a great example of that. Um, in the 50s, there were five men and their families who went down to South America to the country of Ecuador. They went down there. They, these, these were very, very talented guys. One of them was a pilot. They were, they, were, they were just had a burden to go tell people about Jesus that had never heard, to go places where people don't want to go. And in Ecuador, there was a group of people down there. Some know them as Aquas. They don't like that name. They really want to be called the Warani. That's their, that's their name. The Warani tribe who were brutal, brutal tribe down in Ecuador. They had killed oil workers that were down there. They, they were known for their fierceness. I mean, if, if one person died, they would fiercely go take revenge on the tribe. Uh, the, 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 of the people that tried to hurt them. <clears throat> and so that was the group that these five went to. And I just wanted you to think for a, just that alone for a second. Would you do that? If God says, okay, I'm giving you signs that lead you to this direction, are, you, are, are we more inclined to think, well, if I go, I then I won't be able to do this. And I mean, I mean, there's a chance I could die. Of course there is. There is. And I think so often in our life, we conditionally follow God. We say, oh, I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to trust you, but I'm going to make sure that this is in order over here before I do anything because, you know, I, I can't give this up. That's, that's typically the way a lot of people in this country operate, not these five guys. So they went down there and they were actually having some success. They were dropping stuff in. They were trying to communicate with them. And then one day, they landed their little plane on a little, uh, a, a little beach area in a river. That's where they would land their plane. And, and they were going to go try to make contact with them. And when they did, what they didn't know is that there was a guy in the tribe who was... Uh, basically committing adultery with somebody, somebody else's wife, that guy went and told the tribe he got the people distracted from what was going on with him in the adulterous situation because he knew he could die from having to do that. So he told the tribe that the missionaries were doing evil things, got them all focused and whipped up. So when the missionaries came, they killed him. And that was in the 50s. And it was a guy named Jim Elliott who was one of those. Jim Elliott, by the way, is the guy who said he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
He wrote that before he died. He wrote that before he went down there. And he went down there knowing that it could cost him his life. And it did cost him and the four others. Well, this, this made news everywhere. Listen, there had been martyrs before, but it, it just for some reason struck our country. It was in Time Magazine. It was in all the newspapers up here back in the 50s. It was a big deal. The U.S. government went down there and helped recover the bodies. It was a big deal. But it launched one of the greatest missionary like revivals of our time. As a result of that, more people have gone into missions than probably any other fact in modern history. That one event. So what seemed like an awful, terrible thing was really something that God used as an opportunity to launch. And the very people, you know who, who went in there? and shared the gospel with these tribes people. The first people to go in there was Jim Elliot's wife. They went in not to kill them. They didn't ask for vengeance on them. They went in there to love them. Now think about that for a second. What that took. And it was hard. If you read Elizabeth Elliot, she's got lots of books out there. Um... But one of them is called Through the Gates of Splendor. So it's a good read about the whole thing. But she talks about how difficult it was. Can you imagine somebody killing your spouse and you're in there trying to love them and tell them about Jesus? How, on a physical human level, how hard that would be. But that's what happened. If you look throughout history, persecution's been around for a long time. Of Christians. I mean, persecution of God's people has been around for thousands of years. And the true church should expect persecution. Now, persecution is not somebody getting mad at you because you're being a jerk. And you're a Christian and you you claim that you're being persecuted because you're a Christian, but you're really a jerk in the way you try to share the gospel with them. That's not persecution. Okay? That's just you being a jerk. A lot of people do that. Oh, and, and they, they try to beat people over the head and they they berate them and they're they're not loving to them and they can't understand why they're they're treated the way they are. But persecution has been around for a long time. We should expect it. Over in John 15, Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hates me. Over in John 15, 18. In John 16, 2, He, said, he tells His disciples, listen, they're going to kill you and think they're doing it for God. But they don't know me or the Father. Now, when I read that verse today, it has a very different impact on me than it did before I ever went to India or before I ever really go, I went to any Muslim countries because I've actually had I, I don't know if you guys remember me telling you this years ago but uh, when I was in uh, Kazakhstan I had 13 Muslim missionaries sit down with me one day and we debated for about four hours and I thought they were going to kill me. I really did. Because I was in this country. They were there from Iraq, from Iran, the Middle East, to evangelize people with Islam in Kazakhstan. And they wanted to talk to me. 
But in the Middle East, Muslims kill people who say they're Christian. You convert to Christianity, you're on a death list and you die. In India, the Hindus kill people. In Asian countries, extreme Buddhists kill people. They think they're offering service to their God, to the God, but they don't know the one true living God. In the U.S., we're persecuted, but not physically. We're, we're, not, we're not persecuted physically here yet. But we are persecuted in this country. We've seen it even in our lifetime emotionally, financially. And you know who we're persecuted here? By not religious people, by immoral pagans who want to live any way they want and they see us as a threat to their way of life. And so if you're a Christian baker and you say, I can't do this in my conscience, you're sued and the Supreme Court has ruled that that suit is good. And so you end up paying a fine. fine. And then these people who have done that have been not just targeted once or twice. I mean, like, think about it. When somebody goes in, there's five bakeries in the town, and they go to this one, and they know this one's a Christian, they want to target them. And now other people go in there who are trans doing the same thing. That, that is a form of persecution there because they're targeting, and that's what persecution is. It's a targeting, a, a programmatic effort to go in because of somebody's faith to, to go in and harm them. In verses or chapter 3 through 5, the apostles were persecuted, and we see that. We've covered that already. They were persecuted. Why? Because they were teaching about Jesus. They were preaching about Jesus. The ones that they were preaching and teaching to were the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. And they said, you got to stop this. Why? Because 8,000 people responded to the message, and these they, they were a threat. And so the leaders in chapter 3 said, you got to stop they go, listen, we can't stop. We're, we're going to obey God rather than men. In chapter 4 and 5, the same thing happened. They brought them back in. This time they flogged them and beat them. But again, this is just the apostles. This is not the church at large. They brought in the leaders. But something different's about to happen in chapter 8. Because in chapter 7, we saw the first Christian martyr. The church's first martyr... It was the church's first martyr when Stephen was killed. And why was he killed? Because he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus, and they killed him. And as they killed him, there was a young guy there named Saul. And when you read that, it's interesting at the end of chapter 7, and this is where we left off. It says... When they cast him out of the city, talking about Stephen, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Do you know why they laid their garments down at Saul's feet? He was the one that brought the charges against him. He was the one, he approved the stoning. And they took their garments off because they didn't want anything inhibiting their ability to throw rocks and kill Stephen. So they laid their garments down at Saul's feet. So Saul was right there giving his approval. He's the one that brought the charges against him. Saul might have been one of the ones in the synagogues. Remember back earlier 
in chapter 6, Stephen was going to the synagogues and preaching Jesus. And these were Hellenistic synagogues. One of them was from a group from Cilicia, where Tarsus is. And Saul was from Tarsus. He might have been in that group. Saul was a Hellenistic Jew. I don't know if you knew that, but Saul was not from Jerusalem. He was from Tarsus. He was Hellenistic. And so he was probably really agitated that Stephen's preaching about this God, you know, and, and Jesus that is different from what he envisioned. And so Saul brought charges, and now in chapter 8, we see the persecution not only hit Stephen and the leaders, but it's going to hit the church. But again, there's two real thoughts to this outline today. They're very simple. If you follow Jesus and are part of His family, you will be persecuted. Period. You will be. At some point, if you, if you follow Jesus, if you're part of the true church, you will be persecuted. Second, if you follow Jesus and are part of His family, you will proclaim Jesus as Messiah and His Word. If you're part of His true church. So if you step back and you go, well, I'm not being persecuted. I'm not being persecuted. Does that mean I'm not part of the true church? Maybe. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He was talking to believers when he said that. See, we don't like that. We don't like it when some person stands up in front of us and says, you better examine yourself to see if you're... Well, but wait, I go to Bible study. I'm at SWAT. Or I'm at church. I give money. I, 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 I've been on mission trips. Matthew 7, Jesus said, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, I did this, this, and this for you. Depart. I never knew you. Again, well, well, you know what? I, I'm. <laughs> I have my faith, just not very public about it. At some point, it's got to be public. If you're part of the true church, why would God leave you here and never use you to witness to somebody else about Him? If you're part of the true church, you will. You're going to be persecuted. And so you better stand by because it, it, it is happening. If it hasn't happened, you've got to ask yourself why. Second, you're going to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. If you're not doing that, if you've never done that, you've got to ask yourself why too. These are two questions we've got to wrestle with as as his church. And when we come to a passage like this, we see what the true church is experiencing. We got to go, well, this is what true believers have experienced throughout time. Why is it not happening here? You know, I had the chance, I went down to Ecuador and met one of the people that were in that group that killed Jim Elliott. I actually went into a church down there. A little, group, a little group of believers that this guy was the elder of. He prayed over our team. There were four of us there. 
one of the guys that killed Jim Elliott is now praying over me. Do you know how surreal that was for me? And, and, and I got a picture with me standing by the plane that took us in there with this guy. He only is about this high. But I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is a believer because Jim Elliott laid down his life to go proclaim Jesus. How important is it to us to proclaim Jesus as Messiah? Well, let's read the text and we're going to come back and unpack these two thoughts real quick. Starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May God bless the reading of His Word. So Saul was there. It says, Saul approved of his execution. He endorsed it, right? This Hellenistic Jew. But what was interesting is that Saul witnessed in Stephen a foreshadowing of his own life. If you look at what Stephen experienced in a very short time, that really was a foreshadowing of everything Paul would deal with. Stephen debated in the synagogues. What did Paul do? Debated in the synagogues. Stephen was beaten. He was He was arrested. Paul was arrested. He was stoned. Paul was stoned. It was a foreshadowing of his life. Little did he know as he's witnessing this, what God's about to do. Stephen was a blip on the biblical radar. Saul, God used to write half the New Testament. I guarantee you not one disciple probably or apostle or person that was in the 8,000 that heard about Stephen's death and knew Saul was the guy there would have believed that Saul would give us half the New Testament. Nobody would have believed that. Sometimes, guys, there are future believers among the haters and the persecutors. If you go over to Acts 22, when Paul's telling his story in verse 19, he says, he's telling this story, uh, he's, he's speaking to them um, and, and making a defense because he's, he's arrested. They, they take him and they, they, they have him there. A centurion kind of rescues him because they're going to tear him apart because he's been speaking about God. So he wants to make a defense. So he's talking to them and he says, 
And I, I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul never forgot that moment that he was there with Stephen. It was a crucial moment in his life that God used to cement in his memory. But guys, persecution is good for the church. We don't see it as good. When you're thrown into a terrible situation where you have to depend on God, think back, Daniel chapter 3. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Three Hebrew guys. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar bowed down and worshipped this idol. We're not going to bow down. Our God will deliver us. Even if He doesn't, we'll never bow down. Okay, you're going in the fire. Throws them in the fire. Wait a minute. There's not three guys in the fire. There's four. One looks like the Son of Man. Nebuchadnezzar has to scream at him to come out of the fire, which is bizarre because you don't do that to people in a fire. You don't have to tell them to get out of the fire. But he did. They didn't want to leave Jesus' presence. They were with the Son of God. They didn't want to leave. But they come out and listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is, this is fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent His angel and delivered His servants, who trusted in Him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So was that a good thing or a bad thing? When you got the leader of the, the known world at that time making that kind of declaration about the God of Israel? <clears throat> Over in Daniel chapter 6, you see the same thing. But it's another guy, it's Darius. Who's ruling? Listen to what he says. Darius says, he wrote to all the people, because you know the story. I mean, I'm not going to go through it. Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. Why? Because he was praying. He was told not to pray. That's persecution. Guys hated him. Because three times a day he prayed to the one true living God. They hated him. They went to Darius said make a decree. He was thrown into uh, a lion's den. And Darius, when he goes in there and finds him, he, not, he, he commanded that those who had maliciously accused Daniel be brought and cast in the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Wow. God wanted us to know very specifically, in this case, what happened. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. 
Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So here's a question for us. Have we, gave, have, have we ever given a testimony to the greatness of God like these two pagan kings? That's humbling to me. That these pagan kings put out these decrees of the almighty power of God to everyone. But what did it take to do that? It took persecution and them seeing. And these, it took these guys being willing to put their lives down. They didn't care. They weren't conditional with God. <clears throat> I find it interesting in verse 1, it says that when the persecution arose, they were scattered except the apostles. Why? Because God said, I want y'all to stay in Jerusalem. Now that, that was bold. Because they knew what was coming. They, they were, I mean, Saul was going house to house, taking men and women, throwing them in jail. But God wanted the apostles. God's plan was different for everyone. And in the same way, Riley, you have a different plan for your life. We can't, we can't be like Peter. Well, what about him, Lord? What's going to happen to him? And, and Jesus said, don't worry about him, Peter. You worry about you. You just be obedient to me. In verse 2, I want you to take notice there where it says, devout men buried Stephen. These were Jewish people. These weren't believers. These were just Jewish men who didn't agree with the killing of Stephen. They were devout men. And what they did, listen, when somebody was stoned in the Mishnah, which is not the, the, the Bible, the Mishnah was the oral tradition of the Old Testament passed down through the, uh, the rabbis. But in the Mishnah, when somebody was stoned, you were not allowed to cry over them. And so it's very interesting that here it says these devout Jewish men who didn't agree made great lamentations over Stephen. They were signaling their disapproval. Not everybody bought in to what was going on. And probably a large group of these devout people were the ones that ended up being converts to Christ. It says in verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. This is the only time in the New Testament this word's used, ravaging like this, the Greek word. And you know what it means? It, 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 it's, it's not used in the Bible anywhere else. You've got to go to outside of uh, uh, biblical literature to see it in Greek. And it means literally an animal tearing his prey apart. That's what the word means. That's what Saul's doing, tearing the body apart. He's going, taking people, throwing them in jail. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You will be persecuted. You will face opposition if you're part of the true church. And that's the message here. And notice in verse 4, and it says, Now those who were scattered, no names there, right? Everybody who scattered, what? 
went about preaching the Word. So they scattered from Jerusalem and they were proclaiming. Because that's what God's people do. We proclaim who Messiah is. We proclaim His Word. You see, persecution is an obstacle. But that obstacle always produces an opportunity. Anytime there's obstacles in our life, and it doesn't matter whether they're persecution obstacles or whether they're circumstantial obstacles, they always present an opportunity to proclaim Christ in some way, shape, or form. His sovereignty. His, his messiahship. His leadership over me. The hope that we have in Him. And he says in verse 5, Philip... Now we've heard that name before back in chapter 6. Philip was one of the seven with Stephen that distributed food. He was a deacon. He wasn't really... I mean, the word there to serve is, is like a, a deacon, but he was one of the, the seven guys there that would distribute food to the widows. We don't know that he was a preacher. We don't know that much about him, but we know here it says he went down to the city of Samaria... Some uh, some translations say a city of or a city in Samaria. Uh, many writers believe it's the city of Samaria. That Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. When the two tribes split in Israel, and you had the northern kingdom, ten tribes, all evil kings. One of the kings was a guy named Omri. He made Samaria the capital, and in Samaria they had two idols basically they worship he wanted to give a temple there like a place for people to come but it was idol worship because he knew they had a temple down in Jerusalem and so it became a, a, a very pagan place in a lot of the people's minds especially the people in Jerusalem and Judea and Benjamin those two tribes but something else happened in Samaria when Assyria came in and they 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 brought the Israel into captivity, there was a lot of intermarrying going on. You know what happened? didn't happen with the southern tribes in Babylon? Intermarrying. The southern tribes did not intermarry. Why did they not intermarry? Because God's Word says you don't do that. You don't intermarry with pagan people. And so the southern tribes didn't do that, but the northern tribes did, and they were always looked down upon. That's why the Jewish people hated the Samaritans so bad. I mean, if you take um, what, what we would call ethnic prejudice or racism in our culture, multiply that like a thousand times, that's what the Jews felt toward the Samaritans. And so it's significant. It says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. You know, I find it interesting that the first person that Jesus revealed His Messiahship to was a Samaritan at the well in John chapter 4. Isn't that interesting? Notice the word that's used there. He went preaching the Word. The word in the Greek is... And, and Greeks were very specific about their words. Is the word euangelion. It comes from the same word, same root word. Euangelia. It's euangelismo or something like that. I don't know exactly the, the right pronunciation, but it comes from the root euangelion, which means good news. It was only a lot... There's, there was three times that somebody 
euangelion in the Greek culture. When an emperor was born, when an emperor received a great victory, or an emperor was coronated. That was the only time that word was used. When an emperor was born, when an emperor was, uh, had a great military victory, or an emperor was coronated. It's the only time. But that's the word that Luke uses here. Now what's interesting is, real quick, Romans. Let me take you to Romans chapter 10. Some of you may know this passage. Uh, and I think I've shared this before, but I, it's worth repeating right now, especially since that's the word is used by Luke. Romans 10.14 How will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who euangelion the good news. And some in the original Greek, it basically says, and they 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 uh, proclaim the good news of the word. So what is the good news? Well, you have to go back to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And that's significant because some of you guys may know that in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Septuagint is a, is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you go back to Isaiah in the Septuagint, verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings euangelion. So that's what Paul's quoting in Romans. And then he goes back and tells us, so what is the good news? Well, for most people in our culture, we say the good news is Jesus died for you. That's only part of it, guys. Who publishes peace, who brings euangelion of happiness. Who publishes salvation. That's the part where He saves you. But we leave this out. Who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your God reigns. That's part of the good news. The good news is that God reigns. Jesus reigns. He is Lord. He is King. People don't want Jesus as King. They only want Him as Savior. He reigns. You are, you are leaving out part of the good news if you don't proclaim loudly that He's King as much as He is Savior. Everybody wants a Savior. Nobody wants a Master. And, and we have woefully been inept in sharing the Gospel because we've left that out. But that's what Philip did. And by the way, Philip is one... One story Luke picks out of all the people. It says they all were scattered, but he just he picks Philip just to say this is one example of what was going on. Go back to Acts chapter eight real quick, because I want to pick up what Philip is doing here. Philip goes to Samaria, about forty miles north of uh, Jerusalem, and it says that and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Why? They heard him and they saw the signs he did. Notice they heard him 
and they saw the signs they did. Why is it significant that it says they heard him? Do you think Philip believed what he said? Do you think it's important if we're going to proclaim Christ to somebody, we believe what we say? Philip had seen Stephen, this guy who he served alongside, martyred. He saw him martyred, and yet he continued to do it. It's, 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 it's easy for us to go say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. Jesus reigns. He's awesome. But then what if you and Teddy, you and me are doing that, and then the next week I see you butchered because of that? Am I still going to do it? Philip believed what he was preaching. And he did signs. Even though he wasn't an apostle, unclean spirits began screaming. When he was casting them out, they were going... Because they recognized in Philip the same Spirit of Christ that in Mark 1, when he walked in and a guy's in a synagogue is possessed, the Spirit screamed, Oh, Jesus! We know who you are. They were screaming. Because what could Jesus do? He could banish them anywhere He wanted. And they knew that. And Philip had that same Spirit. Because guys... We don't just do what Christ did. We have Christ living in us. When you are born in the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in you, Paul says. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. It doesn't say everyone, does it? It says many. The word there for proclaim, by the way, when it goes back to, uh, um, it says he proclaimed in verse 5, is the word caruso. That means to proclaim urgently and loudly. Urgently. Think about our own witness. Are we urgent? Boy, is there is there ever a time in our country for us to be urgent? To proclaim loudly that there's hope in Christ? Verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Much joy. There was much joy in that city. You know why there was joy? Because people found Christ. There was much joy. That's a fruit of salvation, guys. That when people come to Christ, I've seen it. Many times in my life where people who've lived their whole life apart from Christ, they come to Him and their whole countenance changes. They're full of joy. They're full of joy. That's a fruit. So, as we think about this text and think about Philip and we think about Stephen and we think about even Paul, Let's answer the question, are we being persecuted? If not, why? Is it because we're not really effectively serving Him? Maybe. If we are being persecuted, how are we responding? Are we angry? Are we vindictive? Are we going to be like Elizabeth Elliot who sees even as painful as the death of your spouse would be, she saw it as an opportunity to go in and show true love and grace to these people. 
That's mind-blowing to me. That's supernatural. The only way that can happen is the love of Christ in somebody. You can't manufacture that. See, that, that's the problem. We all try to manufacture this spirituality in our life, and then when, when we get to the point that it pushes beyond our ability to control, we punt. We punt. Finally, last question. Are we seeing obstacles or opportunities to proclaim out in our world? What are we focused on? What are we focused on? It's a a time for us now like none we've ever experienced. What will we do? What will we do? Chuck, will you close our time in prayer?